<laughs> this is your dream. This is what you wanted to this do. This is literally my bucket list. <laughs> <laughs> the the things the things a West End actor or an actor in London dreams of is it's singing and being forever memorialized in a West End live solo, yeah, <laughs> and then doing a in the frame podcast with Andrew. <laughs> like, th- this is all like a dream come true. I've got this on record. <laughs> that will be used against you. <laughs> oh, you, I, I'm I'm suffering from the winter cold, so you get my sexy bedroom voice. Yeah. <laughs> feel very lucky and it's really quite a romantic setting <laughs> we've we've got artificial candles here at the mania chocolate factory historic hello and welcome to in the frame today's guest is joaquin pedro valdres who is currently starring in the london revival of stephen sondheim's pacific overtures at the mania chocolate factory Joaquin began his career in the Philippines. Originally, he worked in theatre as a child before becoming a member of the boy band 1728. Some of his credits in Manila include playing Jamie in the last five years, standby Charlie Price in Kinky Boots and Mr. Wormwood in Matilda. Joaquin came over to the UK back in 2017 and toured with Miss Saigon and The King and I. After appearing in Fanny and Stella at the Garden Theatre during the pandemic, he played Ram Sweeney in the second West End run of Heathers at the Theatre Royal Haymarket. From there, he joined the cast of Anara at the Hackney Empire and also toured with The Lion King as the Simba understudy. 2023 has been a pretty major year for Joaquin. He appeared in the new musicals Killing the Cat at Riverside Studios and then, now and next at the Southwark Playhouse. He had a major moment starring in the English language premiere of Death Note, which had a limited semi-stage run at the London Palladium and Lyric Theatre which blew up and went absolutely crazy. We recorded this episode pre-show at the Menio. We did an episode of our other podcast, The West End Frame Show, together back in April, whilst Joaquin was doing Killing the Cat. And so much has happened since then, so we had a lot of stuff to catch up on. Joaquin wasn't 100%, but he threw himself into this chat. He's hilarious and lovely and wonderful, but also so gracious and hardworking, um, which really shines through. We delved into all things Death Note and McKean's whirlwind year, as well as what it's like to be part of this exciting major revival of Pacific Overtures. Here's the interview. Joaquin Pedro Valdres. You're in the frame. I'm in the frame, finally. <laughs> you you wanted this. Yeah, I really wanted this. Yeah. You asked me. Yeah, I did. I, a long time ago, but then I didn't have the credentials yet. No! To get, to get in the frame. You know, I know your standards are very, very high for the people that you select for the season. And Selects. I'm very, very fortunate. No, seriously. But we literally did a podcast... It was only in April. I know, but West End Frame is very different from In The Frame. Yeah. It's very, very different. And you know that. Yes. <laughs> so I, I really feel like I'm part of creme de la creme right now. 
um, I might not ever get invited again after this, but who knows? Let's see. Okay. Who's, who, I wonder, who do you know who's done this? Like Leia Salonga. Leia Salonga has done it. Stephanie oh J. Block recently. Oh my God. You're with all the divas. I am. I mean, leading men off the West End. People I look up to. You said you were listening to today, Tom Simpson. I was. I was. Yeah. A lovely, lovely interview. So I, I can't wait to crack on. So what's the mindset? What's the mode? How are you feeling right here, right now, today, in this moment, as we sit here in this kind of dimly lit room with a candle between us? It feels very wintry in london right now um <laughs> and especially since we've just opened the show things are quite calm now the reviews are out we now crack on with the work which is going to take us all the way to february and we get late call times now so no more rehearsals in the day and it's odd because i live in richmond and i just give or take a lot myself an hour to travel to the Meunier. Mm-hmm. Um, and I leave the house, get to spend my day with, with the wife because she works from home. Oh, I get to spend can, the day. You yeah. can like, bring her teas and coffees and make her lunch. Yeah, or she can do that for me. <laughs> 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 no, she does that to me. And, and I, try to, I try to service her. Um, <laughs> that didn't come out right. I try to be of service to her yes. um, in the way that she does to me, but I always fall short. So I wash the dish- dishes, I cook. Um, make sure that the food is great for her. She's very busy. Um, but then we get to spend our day together. I get to go to the gym, and I get to travel to the theater. And like today, I traveled, and it was very gloomy and wet and cold. Made sure I wore an extra layer. Well, people can't see you wearing your Lion King. <laughs> My jumper. Jumper um, with your name on. <laughs> just, to, just to remind myself for the people. That just to tell the world, <laughs> you're like... People, look, I was in the Lion King. Give me a seat on this no, tube. No, it was a very comfortable, it's a very comfortable jumper, I must say. No, it's so. lovely. Um, yeah, and uh, I, I keep pinching myself, getting off the London Bridge Station, seeing the Shard, walking mm. to the chocolate factory, as, 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 as uncomfortable as it is. It's wet, it's crowded in the train. I'm on my way to work, you know, at the Meunier doing a Sondheim, and I that doesn't happen i can't believe i'm saying it right now you know? but that's completing for you an incredible year yeah. and a whirlwind year and a very different year to like your standard mt performer because often it's lots of long contracts mm. and big things and you sit on things but for you this year you've done your jump between some all these different kind of shorter jobs yeah which have been really high profile and in the process... Not all of them. <laughs> well, people have attached them at least. Right, right. There's right. been all yeah. eyes on them in many different ways. Yeah. But I think in the process, we'll go into it more later, but you've yeah. kind of, things have happened for you. Like, I, I can't complain. It's been, I look back and, you know, as people do at the end of the year when they celebrate Christmas and expect the new year, I look back and, um, yeah, it's been a journey. I, there's so much to be grateful for. Um, I was listening to my Spotify wrapped. <laughs> you know how they do a little yeah. story. I love it. And it just reminded me of And it all... said your favorite podcast is In the Frame. Absolutely, it said that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but also it reminded me of all the jobs I didn't get. Because <laughs> you, know you know you're listening to the songs and, and you're preparing for these recalls. Yeah. And it showed me, oh, <laughs> I'm not going to say which songs. 
I'll show you later. Yes, but um, it's just reminded me of the songs at uh, the shows that I didn't get. Um, but yeah, I mean, with with the shows that I've been on, it's been such a great journey, an unexpected one as well. Mm. Um, yeah. Okay, let's talk about Pacific Overtures. Yeah. I can see a whole wall of posters saying "Talk about me, talk about me." Yeah. So this show has a really interesting history. Yeah. For all different reasons, good and controversial. Yeah. Obviously, as you've said, a Stephen Sondheim show. And now, since tragically losing him, we're, it's so fascinating to one by one see his shows again. Come back, we're yeah. almost seeing them through different lenses now because it's right. about his legacy and his work. And also, we're in an exciting time in theatre, I think, broadly, where we're doing lots of re-examining classics and yeah. presenting revivals in new ways and looking through our 2023 lenses to say okay what's problematic about this what's wrong yeah. about this how can we fix this or how can we present it in a different way as right. well so sometime nerd alert Go you on. what did you know about this nothing. before the audition absolutely nothing so what when it came through what was your reaction well i did know that that there existed in the sondheim world a show called Pacific Overtures, which he wrote. I'm that much of a nerd that I knew <laughs> that he wrote it before Sweeney Todd became thing. So this was back in the 70s, and he wrote with John Weidman. And in it was a song called Someone in a Tree, which he personally goes on record to say that this is one of his favorite songs that he's ever written, which is a lot to say. That's all I knew. And I knew that there was something floating around YouTube of the 1974 production, and it was done by the incredible Hal Prince, um, who's famous for all, almost all the Sondheim shows um, and yeah. more on Broadway. And it was done in this big kabuki-style theater and all-male cast performing yeah. in the tradition of kabuki all male casts performing even women roles and it was three hours long it was it was just i i saw bits of it but then this was prior to auditioning for it i saw bits of it and i just didn't understand it um and i, I was very i guess i'm very american in my sensibilities as well um so i just didn't grasp onto it until i knew that it was coming to the main yay <laughs> and i said ah. I want to at least be seen for it because it's a Sondheim. And I, the only thing that was really drawing me to it was the fact that it was written by Sondheim, even if I had nothing. And, and it was an Asian story. Um, even if I had no idea what the show was about, what, what, the, what the characters were and, and what the songs were. And then I was doing a show... Um, in the Riverside Studios earlier this year called Killing the Cat. That's when we did the West End Frame show. That's when we did the West End Frame, correct. And um, it was an odd show, odd little show, uh, as most of new musicals are, which is nice to be part of for a creative team to trust you with that risk of bringing to life a new musical. And in one of our shows, a certain Kathy Jays was in the audience. And she was introduced to me by the producers of Killing the Cat and she's working with the Mania. And a couple of days later, I got an audition for Pacific Overtures. And not long after, I got an offer. So when was that? That was right after 
uh, so that, that was, was like right May, before summer. May time. Oh my gosh. So I knew that I was doing Pacific Overtures before I started Then Now and Next and Death Note. So my whole year was mapped out. Um, luckily, you know, that, that's really a blessing for an actor. Um, and and again, like Then Now and Next, I had no idea what that was going to be. And then Death Note, I had no idea how big that was going to be. And then Pacific Overtures, I was like just glad that I could pay rent <laughs> for the rest of the year um, uh, as actors are wanting to do. So, yeah, so that's all I knew. And I, I, I started digging deeper into Pacific Overtures. And because you had a whole long chunk yeah. of time. So what did you do between getting that offer... And I guess you discover stuff in the audition process and then start taking Absolutely. What did you learn? Yeah. What did you think? I mean, as one is, count on someone like Stephen Sondheim and John Weidman to turn the opening of Japan in 1853 to the West into a musical. Like, I mean... <laughs> no one like, else could. No, no one. ALW could yeah. never. Yeah. No, it's, 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 it's based on history and it's... It takes a certain kind of genius, I'll say, to find the musicality in it. Mm. And and I love it because we don't get shows that like that anymore. It's always anchored in a lot. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love contemporary musicals, but it's always anchored on a love story, on high drama, on epic stakes, on very universal but personal stakes of a character but what they were doing mm. was telling a very east asian story and john weidman majored in east asian history as well which is why he wanted to write pacific overtures they were they were telling a very east asian story about japan opening to the west in a very east asian way which is episodic usually you know, in the West, we 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 know three act structures. We know the Shakespearean five act structure. We follow a through line. We follow characters. In Asia, those rules don't necessarily apply, and it it harkens back to when I was a film major and I loved Hong Kong cinema, mm. Japanese cinema, Akira Kurosawa, who would tell their stories in a very non-Western linear way, mm. and these are episodic experiences um, especially if, i don't know one of my wife's favorite films is akira kurosawa's dreams and it seems from the onset that there's no through line but then what anchors everything into one big story is the theme hmm. or different perspectives on one thing hmm. and that's what you're going to get with pacific overtures it's a lot of different lenses on one historical moment it's quite remarkable for the writing and the research to into that mm. to have come together in this yeah. way. It's very high concept, which is why I think back in the 70s with Hal Prince, who was also an incredible director, um, if I might say so myself, I, I have never worked with him. <laughs> yeah. but I just know his work. Um, <laughs> who am I? Uh, but then he goes into another high concept version of staging this very high concept book and high concept music. Um, Stephen Sondheim, apparently, I find out through research for Pacific Overtures, was a maths guy. He he loved his maths. He loves the logic and the equation of things. And you can see how intelligent, how clever his rhymes are and his musical phrases are. And 
so you got you essentially got two geeks like John Weidman and Stephen Sondheim wanting to make this artistic masterpiece with Hal Prince, high concept, and I understand why it was hard to understand back then. And what fast forward to the many different iterations over the years, but what our director Matthew White does with this is he strips it down to the bare essentials because there's so much to digest and chew on from the book itself and there's so much to digest and chew on from the music itself and he strips it down as you're, you're going to see in the show and I'm just saying it tonight for context excellent. people listening yeah you're just and and all of the pure ingredients come up come to the surface and you don't need to over sauce something that's already really tasty and I'm going to go with this food analogy <laughs> I've described it, this show in particular, in this particular staging of Pacific Overtures, like an omakase. Like when you go to a really bougie, nice sushi restaurant and you get the chef right in front of you and he gives you bite-sized sushi, sushi, I can't even speak, sushi in, 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 um, in intervals, nice. right? And it's a, it's a sliver of fish over a ball of rice, perfectly cooked rice, with just a brush of some sauce. And it's cut and done so elegantly and delicately, placed in front of you. You need to take a breath to admire how it looks. And then you need, when you, when you finally put it in your mouth, you need to take a breath. And before you just complete that whole journey of that small bite. And it's almost meditative and ceremonial. Oh, and that's what this show is. Mm. The, the ingredients are simple and pure and right in your face. It, it's presented so close in this space. It's right there in your face. Mm. And you just need to take a breath. Mm. And that's what the show is. <sighs> Mic drop moment. <laughs> Look at you go. Look at this. You're too much. Literally, we sat on a candlelit table. This I know. is hilarious. It's romantic. Yeah. <laughs> what about, you talked about Matthew White's vision and his approach and rehearsals i think this is a show it raises some eyebrows because of things that have happened in the past i mean i saw a production of this in london off west end 10 years ago i've heard about this where you know it's an east asian story but it was like an i think i think from what i remember it's like an all-white cast pretty much which is not correct for this story and the people whose lives are being presented on stage yeah and there's various things like that that we hear about this yeah. stories of this show being problematic and not being done in the right yeah. way. So was there, not just in the casting, but I guess in the way these people were presented and the research that went in, did it feel like an authentic experience? Did it feel like the, there was, you were re-examining it? Absolutely. There was so much care that was put into this. And I think the reason why there's a lot of controversial stagings often in the past is because the concept the concepts of the book and the show itself is so exciting to explore on stage. Mm. So it just inspires so many people to, what, what can we do with this? It's so high concept. It's so obscure. It's so elusive. How do we make it even more elusive? And I think the authenticity came with this production going the complete opposite of that and not trying to do too much with the actual text. And when Matthew White, a director... Kathy, our supervisor, musical supervisor, and Ashley Nottingham, who's a choreographer, worked on it in Tokyo in co-production with Omeda Arts in Tokyo and in Osaka. That lent itself this to a, a conversation that was so open about 
the authenticity and and the portrayal of history. Granted, it was written by two white Jewish New Yorkers, right? But it was written from a perspective of we don't know exactly what happened in history. And they're not shying away from the fact that it was white people, Americans, that wrote this this show. Mm-hmm. And I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with that because the show is about Japan opening up to the Americans. And there's a lot of tongue-in-cheek, very strong satire against themselves. It's, self, it's very self-aware and mm. how the Americans oh, and the Westerners are portrayed. Yeah, interesting. And it's so self-aware and tongue-in-cheek and it's so funny. And I think when they brought it to Omeda Arts and Matthew White and the rest of the creative team opened this conversation up with the, the Japanese producers, it lent itself even more authenticity to converse and to dialogue about how are we going to tell this story without without it being um, misconstrued as as super subjective or just super inaccurate or, you know, dare I say, offensive. And whatever care and research that they put into it is so evident mm. um, in this production. And I'm, I'm genuinely very proud of it. Mm. There, are, there are historical context as to why certain things are but it's not the intent is never to stereotype is never to minimize Mm. or diminish the asian experience Mm. or the asian storytelling and i think you'll see that even the japanese producers and my co-star takoro ono who's an incredible actor he's a big television and theater star in japan will attest to that and to how there's so much care and delicacy um, and and just love that was brought into the process of creating this particular staging. Mm. It's really interesting. I think it's, like I said, we have now Stephen's work coming back kind of one by one. Yeah. And it's so such a great opportunity to have this, to for people to discover it, to rediscover it, yeah. and to look at it through a new lens with his legacy and also what this show is tackling. It's so interesting. Yeah. Before we move on, tell me about what you're doing. What are you giving us in this show, Joaquin? What am I giving you? Yeah, what are you giving me? What, what are you going to give me later? Oh. How am I going to take you take? <laughs> how am I going to take you in? Ooh. All right, Andrew. <laughs> I mean, I know there are candles around, but... <laughs> <laughs> When I'm sat on my seat at the Medigay and you're yeah. performing for the audience. Right. <laughs> my God. I, I love this show. So I play John Mangero, yeah. uh, who is a historical character. Yeah. Um, and quite a, a really exciting character because there is a monument that's dedicated to him in Massachusetts. He is the f- one of the, the a well-loved icon in Japan. But basically... He was a fisherman that was lost at sea at 14 and gets picked up by Captain Whitfield and brought to Massachusetts, taught English, fell in love with America, mm-hmm. and pursued to go back to Japan, basically to bring in a lot of his love for the progress and ideas that Americans had back to J- Japan when Japan was a closed country, or Sekoku. And... It was a risk that he took, and 
historically it paid off because then Japan opened up and he was, you know, he was part of that. But in this show, there's a lot of creative license okay. that they take with my character, John Manjaro, mm-hmm. who is the foil to Takoro Ono's Kayama Eizaimon, a minor samurai who also existed in history. But John Weidman and Stephen Sondheim really explore the fictional. They take nonfiction elements and then they, they, they turn it into this beautiful fiction so that it becomes a metaphor to to Japan that we see in two mm. faces. And are you belting your face off? No. Are you giving us quick lyrics, complicated melodies? No. This is going to be so antithetical to everything I've been doing for the, for the past year. It's going to be, I think... One of my most mature, I guess, and most restrained performances. And I'm really proud of it. Um, it's storytelling. It's, it's calm. It's grounded. Um, and I think hopefully affecting. And you said you're a Sondheim geek. I am. And Jenna Russell, the Sondheim queen oh, of my. British theatre, came to watch you. And I think people might have seen it there on social media <sighs> that you you freaked out because she was so complimentary. I have it printed and framed at my house. Right? <laughs> that, that, that screen grab <laughs> is forever going to be in my house. <laughs> so, yeah, we had press night. Um, and I told, you know, in the mania, uh, people who've worked here have told me about this. But it's a shared space. Um, it's a really small, quaint, warm theater. And the dressing rooms are even warmer and smaller and quainter. And we're sharing everything. Food, love, gossip, and apparently the winter flu. So, um, but yeah, so I told everybody, look, if there's someone important in the theater, I don't want to know. You know, if you could just like whisper so that I don't hear it, whoever's in. Uh, Because I just don't want to, you know, I don't. I don't want to. I don't want it to affect my performance. But press night happened, and I just knew that my agent was in, my wife was in, and then as I went out of the theater after the show, out of the dressing room after the show, one of the first faces I see that's being surrounded is Maria Friedman, mm-hmm. and I'm like, my my niece just went. I was like, oh my god, it's Maria Friedman. I'm like, I need to go to her, and she kind of met me halfway. And she was like, I love you. I love you. Like, she, she, your face just lights up. And she said, you have so much heart. And I'm like, can I just record you saying that so that I can play it back every day? Um, did you do it? Did you, did no, you, I, I didn't. <laughs> can you imagine? So, I, uh, yeah, I, I don't know where, where my phone was. I didn't even get a photo with her. But then I just let, let it happen. And I, I gave her a big hug. And I said that Merrily We Roll Along, that she's directed, is one of the quintessential productions of any Sondheim show I've ever seen. Um, Did you see that in London? I saw it on stream. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. When it transferred to the Pinter. I I don't think I was in the UK yet. Yeah, about Um, 10 years ago. Yeah, Damien Humbley, Mark Umbers, and Jenna Russell were just like the trifecta of masterclass Sondheim genius. Mm. And it just changed me. Um, and I told her that, and she was like, "Oh, you're amazing! Thank you for that." Da, 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 da. She was just really lovely. And then I, I did the rest of the press night. And then <laughs> so when I got home, I realized that Jenna Russell was in the room, and Trevor Nunn was in the room, and Jenna Russell, you know, said some nice things online. And I was like, "What?" Yeah. So I, I commented and I told her that 
um, it was her production of Merrily that really made me tend my dream to be Sondheim punny. Um, if you know, you know. And then she replied and said, it's a Sondheim full circle. And I'm like, oh, yeah. Screen grab, print, tattoo on my body. Yeah. Another tattoo. Yeah, another tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about your year. Yeah. Actually, let's just go with Death Note, okay? Because right. Death wow. Note was a huge, huge moment. Yeah. I don't sound patronizing, but I felt so proud oh. when I watched you do it and had that moment. You were such like a defiant leading man. Oh. It was everything. It was so cool. And it was such a cool show and a cool project, I yeah. think, for so many reasons. Now that, I mean, you're out of Death Note world for now, at yeah. the moment, how does it feel to reflect on that chapter of the journey and what happened and the journey it took you on and what it did for you? Don't be humble. Like, it did massive things for you as an individual and as a performer. It, it's, I, still, I still catch myself just, like, you know, messaging Aji, my wife, and saying, did did that part of this year just happen? It so quick. It, it was so quick, and it, w it was just massive. We went to New York. I recorded in New York as well. Yeah, to, to um, do Comic-Con, right? To do Comic-Con, and then I did I did a track for the concept album. Because I saw you. We were watching Jenna Russell in Flowers. Yes, we Mrs. did. Harris, yes. and you were literally about to fly out to New York, right. I think, like the next day yeah. or a few couple of days later. And um, to do Comic-Con, that Playbill invited Death Note London <laughs> to participate. Like... These are things that you don't you don't plan. Playbills called, yeah. It, it's wild, and <laughs> you know all of the articles. You know, with my photo with Adam Pascal. Like it, it, things just happen so fast, and things that you can't control. You can't. You can't. As as the Gen Zers say, you don't have this in your bingo card of 2023. <laughs> you know, um, but it just happens, and you you have no choice but to write it and write it well because that's what you're trained to do that's what we're trained as actors to be able to handle when things happen you need to be able to show up all of the self reflection of it and and the realization happens usually after <laughs> you know when everything has when, when the cloud Clouds have settled and gone. Well, because also, it was a difficult challenge. Like, it was a massive thing. It was a massive yeah. role. And it was lots to do. And I guess it wasn't a full six-week West End rehearsal yeah. process. Because it no. was on for, you know, a few, like a week and a bit. Like, right. So it was fast-paced. Yeah, very fast-paced. And it was two you weeks a, rehearsal. Yeah. The, it's, it's not the easiest score to sing. I was on leading man detention. I put myself on leading man detention after rehearsal, go home, all the multivitamins, made sure my body was match fit, made sure my voice was match fit. And did you say, did you, was it the Dane Chalfin quote? Did you, did you use, or was it something yeah. else online? Yeah. I really recognize that vocal injury can happen. Yeah. And it, it's happened to me before, thankfully not during Death Note. Um, and it's so funny how people, are, are, you know, who watch it are just so, you know, there's a lot of ease and they're more than entitled to do that when they compare certain certain performers, um, not really taking into account that what they're watching is a live performance. And maybe the show that they bootlegged is not as good as the night before yeah. or the night after. Um, maybe there's lots of things that are happening. And I, I, after Death Note, it really taught me to be okay 
with people not liking me. It, it's it's fine. You're allowed. People are allowed to not like me in varying degrees, just as people are allowed to like me in varying degrees. <laughs> you know what I mean? And and it's fine. Um, if I put my identity and my passion to work on the approval of whether or not people are going to like me based on a bootleg, based on a illegal recording, or even based on just whatever, general. Like, if they came to see the show and they decided that I wasn't as good as enter name here, that's fine. Um, my identity is in finding the joy in getting to do the work that night and every night. You know, I'm a very big Mike Alfreds fan who wrote the book Different Every Night, and and the joy of the actor is finding the impulse, the sport of impulse, finding the ability to change your co-actor and being open to change yourself every single night. And that's the joy, and it, and that's live theater. That's what I love about live theater. It's never going to be the same. And Death Note proved to me that, one, is all of my vocal training um, with my vocal coach, Matt Shaw, who I love and adore, um, since I moved here since 2018, has really built my instrument to to survive something like Death Note. If it doesn't, what it does happen, you're ready. You're ready for it. Um, I didn't know it was going to be received that big. I didn't know that there was going to be a lot of comparison. I didn't know that people want are demanding for the concept album to be released and a full West End run. To I mean, I, nobody could expect that. You just go into every job putting as much as you can as a professional and and as a as a creator um, into it mm-hmm. and hoping for the best. It was going to be a day at the Palladium and then look what <laughs> happened. And when I went to see, I saw the lyric. Oh, yeah. People around me were losing their minds. I mean, it was insane. But then yeah. we've spoken all maybe off mic before about like Miss Saigon yeah. and we have just been talking about this as in Pacific Overtures and what's incredible about Death Note is that you're seeing Asian representation and Asian people right? but it's not a story about yeah. their history or what they've encountered it's just circumstantial right? Yeah. It's, 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 it happens to be set in Japan and we haven't really had something like that on stage right. there aren't examples of kind of cast of Asian people performing yeah. shows where it's not like you're in the Vietnam War or yeah. you're... Look, I don't, I don't know uh, if and when the full Death Note experience will happen. Um, and I think, I think the audiences, both in London and on Broadway, are ready for it. They're very excited mm-hmm. for it. Um, and I don't know when, when that's going to happen. But like what you said, we don't... After Miss Saigon, after The King and I, which are essentially already part of a certain era in the canon of musical theater, we don't have that kind of show for Asian faces and Asian voices. And Death Note is that. And it's so exciting that it's received not just because it's an Asian story, but because it's a good story. Exactly. And it's a good show with incredible music. Um, and yeah, it, it, this, that commerciability is what our, I guess our sector needs, you know, for us to, to show ourselves strong as musical theater talent. And I'm so glad to be a little bit 
a mm. part of that. Like, okay, I didn't know the story. I knew nothing what I was getting into. Yeah. I hadn't seen the Netflix version. I hadn't yeah. seen anything. And I was sat there like, who's he going to kill next? <laughs> on the edge of my seat. Is he going to be, is, is Dean going to find out who he is? Like, what's going oh, on? Yeah. Like, you know, it yeah. was, it's just a freaking intense, juicy story. And it's so fun to sing. Like, it's one of my favorite big, scenes. Big, big belty. Especially with Dean. Like, me and Dean, like, mm. you know, we we have a proper bromance going on, on and off stage. And I'm like, you know, <laughs> it's just so fun to sing his face off um, <laughs> every night. And... We, we were trying a lot of new stuff regularly. That's cool. Which is very exciting. And I've had a couple. I had Jessica Lee on the podcast. The yeah, day, Jess Lee. And also um, Carl Mann, who you did a few shows yeah. with, right? And they were both saying also just what a mad experience it was. Yeah, it, it's fun. And I just really hope and pray that it happens, that a bigger, fuller version of it happens mm. next year. We shall see. So then your other experiences this year have also been cool. But what I want to touch on is... People should go and listen to the West End Frame show, the last podcast you did. Yeah. And you spoke about kind of coming over here and entering into yeah. history and the kind of earlier experiences that you had. Talk to me about what the goal was when the goal kind of changed, as in, yeah. I'm sure you came over and you're like, I just want a job, right? I yeah. want any job. And then at some point, I guess maybe Heather's was maybe a big moment for you. Yeah. You were like, oh, hang on. Like yeah. maybe. More people know about me now. Maybe I can yeah. push myself a bit further here. Like, what's what's your journey like? It's funny because it, it's not my 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 shifts, my drastic shifts didn't happen with a job. Sure, it happened when I was out of a job. So it, the first one, I don't know if I talked about this in West End Frame, was after touring with Miss Saigon and then King and I, I booked my first London job. The one that got away from me was the Jamie Lloyd Barbican transfer of Evita. <sighs> And um, COVID. What was your track supposed to be? Did you have a cover in that? I was covered, Che. Oh my God. uh, Oh, Oh, I'm afraid we don't work here. We don't work here. The the office is on the side. The office is that way. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I love London. I love London so, so much. People who can't, I don't think they can hear. The lady was banging on the window saying, I need to speak to you. I, I need a- to give you a coat. <laughs> it looks fabulous. It looks yeah. like a great coat. <laughs> we don't work here. We're just doing a little podcast. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the one that got away from me was the Jamie Lloyd uh, Barbican <sighs> transfer of Evita. And COVID eventually stopped everything. And that's when my shift was like, you know what? I don't know what's in store. I might have to change career, right? And then Fanny and Selva happened, which was like, what? This small show at Vauxhall mm. changed the trajectory of my career because mm-hmm. that's when I met Nick Winston. Mm, sure. Who yeah. eventually was my director for Death Note. Yeah. My, the next big shift was after touring with The Lion King for one year, um, Aggie and I, my wife, said that touring is hard. We want to be back in London. And again, no, no show, no, no, no contract yet. But as soon as we moved to our house, um, with all the boxes and you know, just a whole year of uncertainty, killing the cat happened, which opened up for Pacific Overtures. And while I was in Killing the Cat, I booked Then Now and Next, and then Death Note, and then Pacific Overtures. So I'm like. It's the shift was for me realizing that you can't control, especially in our industry, you can't force, you can't shoehorn 
the path of your career into what you think it, it should be. And I, you can try and force it, but then when you don't, you realize that the, the opportunities are much bigger and more exciting. Mm. Um, Death Note was not in my radar. I had no idea. As a, and I'm a musical theater geek, so I, I had no idea what Death Note was. I just knew who Frank Wildhorn was. Mm. And then it became that. I mean, then, now, and next, brand new musical with Alice Fern, written by John Robbins and Kit Orton, you know. So cool. With, it's just things like that when you don't try and shoehorn what you think, where you should be in your career. But also with those sorts of projects, like it came, you know, big press nights where mm. said new shows, people coming to see what it's all about. West End Live performances yeah. in the beginning, the dream. Yeah. Like these things. So it, it happened that it was just high profile, high profile, high profile, which is then what has kind of always like pushed you forward and built up yeah. momentum. People yeah. are like, gosh, Joaquin's busy. Yeah. And um, I, I had a conversation with my agent about it and we were chatting and we were like, yeah, this next shift, this, the new dreams now is to go deeper into the possibility Ooh. of what I can do. Mm. And I think now it's nice to be able to show London and the world like the, the breadth and the scope of what I can do as an actor. And that those new dreams and those new ambitions come with new responsibilities as well which is to go deeper into your craft and to just constantly learn and learn from people who are so much better than you. And there's so many people who are so much better than me in this industry. Mm. And you just go deeper into that mm. and keep growing and keep, keep loving the craft. This means to finish. You have a show to do. Final thing, Les Longa did a lovely post the other day, didn't she? Again, it's printed and tattooed onto my body. Ex <laughs> <laughs> Explain what she was celebrating. It's quite remarkable, right? She was celebrating. When we first opened to our preview audiences, she celebrated. She sent me a message. I'm like, when are you? She's like, are you opening to an audience tomorrow? I'm like, yeah, it's our first preview. Great. Wild. That means there will be three Filipinos leading three London shows. And I'm like, wow. Because you have Leia doing Old Friends, you doing Pacific Overtures, yeah. and... Nicole. Nicole Schertzinger yeah. doing Sunset Boulevard, yeah. Who is of Filipino descent. And yeah, it's it's wild. And I, I actually, I th if I'm not mistaken, I'm going to add another name to that. Uh, a lovely, incredible talent. Um, but it's really, a, it's an ensemble piece. But Claire, who is the fifth member of Operation Mincemeat is also Filipino. Claire Marie Hall, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Claire Hall. So there essentially are four Filipino leads mm. in London right now, which which is so great. And for Leia to do that post, I mean, I stand, I, and I responded, I stand on your shoulders, Leia. Mm. You're a giant, and you've broken down these doors for us to be able to do this. And, and I hope, I, I can only hope that my story will also break a little bit more doors for more people to follow suit. Oh, what a beautiful, powerful way to end. My gosh. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. For joining me with this very romantic recording <laughs> of In The Frame. <laughs> I, I, I'm so excited for you to see the show. I cannot wait to see the show. Have a good show. Have a good run. Thank you. Have a good Christmas. Yeah. 
And maybe you'll be invited back for round two. Yeah. <laughs> or you'll come to the West End Frame Show. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm always available for West End Frame Show. Any day. Let's do it. <laughs> Thank you, Wiki. Thank you, Andrew. To be clear, I was joking and Wikeen is definitely welcome in the frame anytime. We have so much more to discuss and he is always a total, total pleasure to speak to. You can see Wikeen in Pacific Overtures at the Menier Chocolate Factory through to the 24th of February 2024. If you're enjoying this season of In The Frame, hit follow and subscribe. You can leave us an Apple podcast or Spotify rating and review. And we love hearing from you. So follow SM Frame on Instagram, TikTok and Facebook. Check out our other podcast, The West End Frame Show, for your weekly stagey catch-up. And I'll be back tomorrow with another incredible guest uh, who used to be the Queen of Green and is currently living her best life in the Queendom. But until then, thank you for listening. 